congrats, you graduated. Happy Father's Day. And congrats again to the college guys who graduated yesterday or graduating today. Congrats. Made it. All right, so for those of you that don't know me, my name is Yuan, or Yuan. Um, I'm part of the teaching team here at Discovery. I'm super excited for the opportunity um, to share with you guys from God's Word this morning. And it's a topic that's kind of super near and dear to my heart that I'm really passionate about. Um, so I'm also crazy nervous because of that. So before anything else, I just want to start with a quick word of prayer. You guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here this morning. God, we are here because of you. Um, we are here to worship you, and we are here because you, Lord Jesus, have conquered sin and death, and you have given us eternal life. And God, this morning, we just want to explore and understand a little bit more what that means. God, because it is so good. And so, God, we lift our hearts up to you this morning. Um, we lift from the words that are going to be shared up to you this morning and pray that your spirit would have your way in us, and that your spirit would be the one um, to be doing your good and transforming work in us, God, um, both now and forevermore as you transform us from one degree of glory to the next because of how good and amazing you are. So, God, we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Um, if you guys don't have a Bible with you this morning, um, you want to raise your hands. Uh, one of our helpers will be passing some out. And also, if you don't have a Bible at home, um, that's our gift to you. We want you to have a Bible, so go ahead and take that home with you. All right, so 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, and we'll just jump right in and kind of read the whole thing um, to kind of set the stage for us this morning. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 to 12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. All right, so first off, just want to quickly remind us again of the context of 1 John. All right, um, John was probably written around 85 to 90 AD, most likely by the Apostle John. And he's writing to um, probably third-generation Christians, right, who probably had never met Jesus in person, but they had believed because of the message that had been passed on to them. And during this time, right, in the first century, there was some false teaching going around, um, specifically kind of the early seas of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was the idea that, you know, the spiritual 
is good and the physical is all bad, right? And the teaching that was going on specifically was that, you know, Jesus wasn't really the son of God, right? But that the spirit of God kind of came upon him at some point and then left again, but he wasn't really the son of God. And what Gnosticism, right, this false teaching of Gnosticism led to was kind of two extremes, both of which were false. Right? On the one hand, it tended to lead to legalism, right? Because when it taught that the spiritual is good and the physical is all bad, it was teaching and telling people that they needed to abstain from kind of all things physical in order to gain eternal life, right? And so it was like really strict, harsh rules, legalism. But on the flip side of that, this false teaching of Gnosticism was also leading to people to license to sin, right? Because they were saying, well, if it's all spiritual stuff that's good and I have eternal life spiritually, then who cares what I do with the physical, right? I can do whatever I want with my life. And that too was a false teaching. And so John here is writing to remind his audience, his readers, that the true gospel gives assurance that leads to action. Right, that the true gospel gives assurance that leads to action. Now, how does John do this? Right, in this passage, starting at verse 1, right, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and ending in verses 11 and 12, right, that this is a testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. John wants to assure his readers in these 12 verses that when they have eternal life, right, and the assurance of eternal life, that it necessarily leads to action and a changed life. And when we look at this, I mean, the first thing we notice about eternal life is that it's a gift, right? That eternal life is a gift that was given to us by God, right? By his initiative, according to his love, by his grace, it is a gift freely given to us. But one thing that's really important is what is this gift of eternal life? Because how we understand a gift can completely change the way we live and the way we approach something. Now, when I was like six or seven, um, I remember there was one Christmas where I was at my grandparents' place, um, you know, my extended family and my aunts were there, and we were opening up our gifts, right, our Christmas gifts. I was six or seven, I was super excited. And you guys probably know, right, as kids, you're taught that no matter how weird the gift is, you're gonna smile, you're gonna look happy, and you're gonna say, thank you, and give your aunt or uncle a hug, right? Like, that's what you're supposed to do. So I was six or seven, and I was opening up this gift, and as I unwrapped it, this is what popped up. Now, I pulled this out, and I was like, it's a beehive. Thank you, right? And... My aunt looks at me, and she's like, no, silly, it's not a beehive. It's a Nerf football, okay? Now, I love football, and that, that football right there, uh, we ran with it, played a lot of good games with it. I actually still have that to this day. Um, and, yeah, I mean, football's my favorite sport now. So, but you kind of see what happens there, right? It was the same gift, this blue spirally ball thing, right? But as far as $20 gifts go, knowing that it was a football was kind of epically life-changing for me, right? Whereas if it was a foam beehive, <laughs> it probably would have just sat on my shelf and collected dust. 
Now, when we talk about the gift of eternal life, I think the challenge for us is I think sometimes we misunderstand what the gift of eternal life actually is. And I think sometimes we have eternal life, but it sits on the shelf collecting dust. You see, when we talked about the context in 1 John and this idea of Gnosticism, I think ironically, that was the challenge 2,000 years ago, but it is the same challenge and same struggle that many of us face today. Because especially in a post-enlightenment society, we so often relegate Jesus and eternal life to spiritual stuff only, right? We speak of this awesome eternal life that we have, but then we go on living our lives looking just like the rest of the world. And sometimes, and it breaks my heart, but I think sometimes we live a very powerless Christianity, right? So this morning, as we come into this, we want to understand what is eternal life and what is the power behind the life that we've been given. Right? Maybe you're here this morning and you, like me, have looked at the state of the church in the Western world and have been perplexed by this powerless Christianity, perhaps discouraged or frustrated. Or maybe you've been trying to live the Christian life, but you feel like you're stuck in a rut, right? spinning your wheels. Where's the power? Or maybe you're here this morning and things are going good and you have been seeing victory and experiencing life with Jesus. Wherever you're at this morning, as we look at this topic of eternal life, I think John's word for us this morning is that we would have hope, that we would be encouraged, and also that we would be exhorted, right? Because eternal life always leads to action. Right, so let's jump into this. Verses 1 to 3, right? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. There's your assurance right there, right? That if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you have been born of God. Assurance. But then in verse 2 and 3, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Right, we see right there the action. Right, so right there, John sets it up, that if you have the assurance of eternal life as a born-again child of God, you necessarily will have to have the actions that follow, that you will obey his commands. Now, here's the kicker for this passage. Right? The second half of verse 3 says this, and his commandments are not burdensome. Let me read that one more time. And his commandments are not burdensome. Now, let's pause here for a minute, because if we're real, I think sometimes we tend to find the commandments of God and of Jesus a little bit burdensome, right? I mean, just look at what some of the commandments we've been looking at and what God teaches over the past few months here at Discovery, right? In Philippians, we saw that we are called to consider others as more important than ourselves, right? In the Sabbath series, we saw that we are called to cease striving and instead to rest and to trust, not in ourselves, but in God, the 
holy trust in God. And man, how hard is that? And even in 1 John, the call for us is to love one another even as Christ has loved us. I was just reading the Gospel of John the other day. And that passage during the Last Supper when Jesus washes his apostles' feet, right? The lowliest job. And Jesus, our Master and Savior, would go and wash the feet, not just of his friends and his disciples, but even of Judas, who he knew would betray him. And he washed his feet too, right? That's the kind of love that we are called to. And I know for most of us, we probably somewhat follow the commandments of Jesus, right? Where it's convenient, we're like, yeah, this is cool, this is good, where it's convenient. But I think a lot of times when it comes in conflict with our desires and the things we're after, we don't really want to see our lives turned upside down. And we prefer the comforts that we have. And in those situations, sometimes the commands of God can feel like a burden. But John here is saying that for a child of God, the commandments of God are not a burden. How can this be? How can he say that? Well, again, perspective and relationship changes everything. Now, I don't like doing dishes, okay? Um, I know some people, like, enjoy seeing things go from dirty to clean, and that brings them some sort of, like, pleasure. I, I don't care, okay? <laughs> like, like, I'm like, I'll use a dirty bowl. It's fine, okay? So it doesn't really matter to me. And therefore, right, doing dishes ever since I was a kid has always been a chore, right? It's a chore. I'm like, why am I doing this? But after I got married, especially during the honeymoon phase of that marriage, <laughs> um, I distinctly remember one time I was doing dishes, and I was like, hey, this is kind of cool. Like, it's still doing dishes, but it's an opportunity to love and serve my wife, right? And I know after saying this, Joy's going to be like, you're doing dishes for the rest of your life all the time. <laughs> Uh, but you kind of see what's going on there, right? It's the exact same thing, doing dishes. But depending on a relationship, it can either be a chore or it can be an opportunity to love and serve, right? And that's what John is getting at here. And so for the next, the rest of this passage, verses 4 through 12, right, John is going to explain to us why it is that for those who have eternal life in Jesus, God's commandments are not a burden, but a joy to follow and obey. Okay, let me say that one more time. That's our main idea this morning. That for those who have eternal life in Jesus, God's commandments are not a burden, but a joy to follow and obey. Now let's look here at verses 4 to 5. The point here is that his commandments are not burdensome because those who believe overcome the world through faith in Jesus. Let me read verse 4 and 5 here. Right, now this, it starts with the word for. It can also be translated because. Right? And so if we start at the end of verse 3, and his commandments are not burdensome, in verse 4 it picks up because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, there's a few things I want us to see in this 
these two verses here. Right? The first and obvious thing that we have to answer is what is the world in this? Okay? Now, John in um, 1 John chapter 2 already defined the world for us. And he said that the things of the world right, are the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life. Right? Or in other words, in and everyday terms, that this spirit of the world is about getting what I need, getting what I want, and magnifying myself for what I've accomplished. Right? And we saw also that this actually points all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, that God had created the world to be good, but that sin had broken and corrupted the way things were meant to be. And so instead of everything being in perfect union with God, it became all about getting what I want. And this is the spirit of the world that John is talking about here. And you'll notice here, right, that no one overcomes the world by their own power. Right? Think about it. We're in the world. If we're honest, we all struggle with those same patterns of sin that we just listed talking about the spirit of the world. We can't overcome that by ourselves, right? But there is one who has overcome that, and it's Jesus. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus is the one that overcomes the world. And so how is it then that we overcome when Jesus is the one that overcomes? By faith, right? by putting our trust in him. Right? This is an overcoming or victory that comes by proxy, right? It's kind of like jumping on a bandwagon. But when you put your faith in Jesus, what you're saying is, Jesus, I want to be on your team. And therefore, when Jesus wins, you win, right? When Jesus overcomes the world, you overcome the world with him. But notice this here, because there's two tenses of the word overcome here, right? There is a done deal has overcome tense, and there is also an ongoing present tense, overcomes, right, or overcoming. You see that there? And this is actually the same pattern of usage of um, tenses that we see in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, um, Jesus is writing these letters to these churches, right? And to each of these seven churches, he ends his exhortation with, to the one who overcomes, I will give. To the one who overcomes, I will give. A present tense, active overcoming. Right? But then he ends that list of seven with just as I have overcome. Right? A done deal overcome. And so we see here again this idea of assurance, a done deal overcome, and also action, a present tense overcoming. How does this kind of work? The way I picture this is, in the hero moment. Now, if you guys have watched enough movies like me, you're probably familiar with this hero moment, whether it's Thor Ragnarok or The Matrix, first one, or Lord of the Rings um, at the Battle of Helm's Deep when Gandalf arrives, you know, with, at the dawn, right? In each one of these moments, there's this epic battle between good and evil, right? And right when it seems like the forces of evil are going to prevail, there's this like epic hero moment where the hero shows up, where the hero overcomes, right, and gains victory. 
And then like in the movie, the music will change, the lighting will change, and you know, right, that despite the fact that there's still this battle going on, it's the beginning of the end, right? You know that the hero has overcome, done deal. But at the same time, in all of those movies, when the hero has his hero moment, you also see then the little minions, right? Whether it be the little hobbits or whoever else is trying to fight this good fight, you will see them going from a place of being defeated to all of a sudden having great confidence. Not in their own strength, but because they know that their hero has overcome. And all of a sudden, they're like, let's go, right? And they can fight on, and they can overcome because their hero has overcome. You guys with me on that? And so that is the idea of the hero moment. And so for us this morning, there is a call for us to be present tense, actively every day, overcoming by placing our faith in Jesus who has overcome. Okay? And I know for some of us, you know, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, I don't feel particularly victorious. Right? I've been struggling with these things. And I just want to encourage you, right, that we do have this great hope, right, that when our faith is in Jesus, he really has overcome. And even though you might not see the victories today, right, we know that at the end of the day, we win because Jesus wins. Okay? Now, when we talk about this idea of faith, right, that we put our faith in Jesus, um, I think faith is a very popular word these days, right? Um, we like to say, like, oh, yeah, just have faith. Right? Or like, I'm a person of faith. We talk about faith a lot as though faith were somehow an end in of itself. But faith is only as good as what you put it in, right? You guys familiar with what a faith drop is? You guys? All right. So faith drop is essentially a team building activity where you have somebody climb up on a stage or on a chair or on a table, and then they drop backwards having faith that their teammates are going to catch them. All right, that's a faith drop. Now, in my kind of college days, we did a faith drop um, with one of our leadership team. And I gotta tell you, it's, it's kind of scary, right? You're like climbing up there, you gotta trust these college kids to catch you, I'm like, yeah. And some people go up there and they're like really scared, but they finally let go and they drop, and then they're caught and it's like all good, right? It doesn't matter how little faith they had, the people that were catching them were strong and caught them. Now, there was this one girl, and she was very bold. Um, she had a ton of faith in us. And so she goes up there, and with all the faith in the world, she drops backwards. And somehow we screwed up. And we dropped her. Um, I will say that ended the exercise very quickly. Uh, we ended up having to take her to the hospital. And thankfully, it was a mild concussion, and she is okay. She is okay today, though. But, yeah, right? Now, this was not the point of the exercise, but it certainly left a very visual reminder for me of the fact that all the faith in the world means nothing if you put it in something that doesn't hold up. Right? Pastor and author Tim Keller puts it like this, that it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. And so 
In our next section here, in verses 6 through 10, John is going to dive in to this question of, is Jesus really the victorious Christ? Right? Can we really put our faith in him? So let's dive in. Verse 6 through 10. And I'm going to read just verses 6 through 8 for now. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. Now, keep in mind the context, right? The people in John's days were questioning whether Jesus really was the Son of God, whether he really came. And so John here is writing to give them testimony, witness, right, that he's the real deal, that Jesus really is the victorious Christ. And the first thing, because we are 2,000 years removed from this, I just want to plug real quick that in academia, contrary to what you might read on Reddit threads, right, in academia and among historical kind of circles or historians, um, it is very well attested to that there really was this guy named Jesus who really was crucified under Pontius Pilate, right? Um, you can read Tacitus, Pliny the Elder, Josephus. These are all secular historians or heads of state writing within 100 years of Jesus' uh, life and death. And even though these secular historians are very antagonistic to Christianity, right? In fact, um, Pliny is writing to ask the emperor, like, hmm, I have these Christians here. Should I be putting them to death? What should I do with them? Right? In their writings, they all confirm the fact that Jesus existed and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and that his followers worshipped him as God. Okay? So the question isn't, did Jesus exist? But the question is rather, what was Jesus' ministry about? Right? Was he really the Messiah or was he just some teacher guy? And so John here gives us three witnesses, the water the blood, and the spirit. Now the first thing, well, I guess the first thing to note is that commentators will kind of be all over the place in terms of what exactly the water and the blood are about. Um, but for the most part, they'll all agree that the general idea is that this here is talking about Jesus's ministry and also Jesus's death and resurrection there. Okay, so we're going to focus on these things. The first one being the water, most likely um, it is his baptism. And this here is talking about the ministry of Jesus. Now, if you go back and read the Gospels and you look at the ministry of Jesus, you will see a ministry like none other, right? That Jesus consistently proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, to be the Son of Man, the one to whom all authority is given. And when you look at the things that Jesus did, he healed the sick, the lame, and the blind. He cast out demons. He raised people from the dead. He taught with authority, right? And all of these things, he was still humble, reaching out to the lowly and the outcast. Right? And in John, the book of John, Jesus says to his critics, if you don't believe me, at least believe because of the works that I've done. Right? And you see in Jesus' ministry in every way, it aligns with the expectations that he was the Messiah. The second thing is the blood. Right? Jesus' crucifixion and his death, and his resurrection. I think so often we look at Jesus' death and resurrection, and we think only about the fact that he died for the forgiveness of our sins. And that is definitely true. Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins. 
But it is also even bigger than that because in Jesus' death and resurrection, this was his hero moment. Right? Look what it says in John chapter 12. Right? Um, this is Jesus realizing right, that the time had come for him to be able to go to the cross and to die. And he says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man, right, the Christ, to be glorified. And then verse 31 and 30, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show but what, what kind of death he was going to die. Right? Jesus saw his crucifixion as his hero moment of triumph over sin and death. And we see the same thing echoed in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 to 6, where it says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Right? And the angel is telling John to look at the lion of Judah. But when John looks, what does he see? Not a lion, but he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Right? Because it is the slain lamb of God, Jesus, that is the conquering lion of Judah that has conquered sin and death. This was his hero moment. But finally, right, we have the spirit. Because if it was just an incredible ministry and Jesus' you know, death and resurrection, that is awesome. But it doesn't necessarily change the world, right? It might change a moment. But the spirit confirms everything that Jesus did in prophecy and in power. Right, if you go back and read the Old Testament, ever since the beginning of the time, it has been prophesied that there would be coming one, a Messiah, right, who would crush the serpent's head, who would crush and overcome the world. And then this spirit also comes in power. Because remember that after Jesus died and rose again, and he said to his followers that they would be receiving the Holy Spirit. Um, I think I've had, there are some verses, right, that talks about the Holy Spirit being poured out like rivers of living water, right? That the Holy Spirit is kind of this transformative moment that takes what Jesus did from just being the acts of one man to being the acts of one man that changed and overcame sin and death and launched the greatest movement this world has ever seen, right? That it took these nobodies, fishermen and tax collectors, and turn them into the leaders of this movement that would turn not just the Roman Empire upside down, but has been turning the world upside down, even through all its messiness, right? Turning the world upside down all the way up to this day, and we're called to be a part of that, to continue to be living out that eternal life in those waters, right? Those living waters. So with that, we have these three things. And you guys know that if you ask somebody to give you a testimony, right, and they gave you three independent witnesses that all said the same thing, that's pretty powerful, right? Well, what John is saying here is that God has given us three independent witnesses in the water, in the blood, in the spirit. And they all point to the fact that Jesus is the, the victorious, conquering Messiah King. And therefore, our faith is well-placed in him. So finally, this brings us to where we began, right? Verses 10 and 11. Let me read that for us one more time. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
So you guys with me this morning? When we look at the victory of Jesus and his hero moment and what his ministry was all about in overcoming sin and death, are we beginning to see what this eternal life is about, right? It's about so much more than just a life that lasts forever, right? This word eternal here means of the age to come. But when Jesus overcame sin and death, he inaugurated his kingdom such that the age to come has already begun to begin. And therefore, eternal life is a different kind of life. It's a life that overcomes sin and death. And it's a life that we can begin to experience today and on into eternity. Paul echoes this same sentiment. If you look at Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 8, I won't have time to read them all, so I encourage you guys to check them out. But in each one of these passages, right, Paul talks about how we have come from death to life. That he asks, you know, where is your victory, O death? Right? Where is your sting? Right? And he says that we have overcome in Christ Jesus. In Romans 8, he talks about being freed from the law of sin and death and instead being alive in the Holy Spirit. And that in all these things, we are more than conquerors because of Christ who loved us. And that nothing can separate us from his love. This is the eternal life, guys. And so again, just to kind of bring it full circle, I'll bring you back to my blue Nerf football. When it says here in verse 12 that whoever has the Son has life, Right? If you have put your faith in Jesus and you have life today, let me ask you, what kind of have is this? Right? Do you have eternal life as in it sits on a shelf and you're waiting for it future tense? Or do you have eternal life as in it is epically life-changing where you're running with it and it is the life you live here and now today? Right? Our main idea this morning is that for those who have eternal life in Jesus, God's commandments are not a burden, but a joy to follow and obey. And do you see how when we realize what this eternal life is about, that it's about this Jesus right, that has overcome sin and death, not just for the forgiveness of our sins, but that in that moment on the cross, he was crowned king. And his kingdom has begun, and we can live in that today. Like, why would we not want to live in that today? His commandments are not a burden because Jesus says that I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And Jesus says that these things I have said to you, that your joy may be made complete. And so there is a call for us to quit dabbling in the sinful, broken things of this world that we're so accustomed to and to start living this new life that conquers sin and death this new life that Jesus has given us. That is the call of eternal life, and that is the gift of eternal life. Guys, I'm not saying it's easy, right? I'm not saying that walking with Jesus and dying to ourselves and following him is something that, you know, is just like effortless, right? There's a call for us to follow him here. But at the same time, I want to encourage you this morning that it is so worth it. It is so worth it. So, application. 
three things. The first one is this. And for some of you this morning, maybe you're here just kind of checking things out. We're glad to have you here. Or maybe you've grown up in church your entire life, but you've never really considered this eternal life that Jesus is calling you to, that this life that conquers sin and death. I want to encourage you guys to come as you are and to ask the questions, right, and to seek and to find. One of the things that I love most about this church is that our mission is to meet people where they are. And if you guys have hung out with me or talked to me, you know that I ask all sorts of questions, uh, even questions that people are like, why are you asking that, right? And it's because I want to know, right? And I just want to encourage you guys to say that you're in the right place for that. So ask questions, right? Grab coffee with somebody and ask away, right? And let's dig into this together. The second thing, right, that we talked about this idea of present tense overcoming today and every day because we have victory in Christ. And so I want to ask you this. Where is it in your life today that God might be calling you to overcome? Right? What area of your life have you perhaps been shying away from obeying God's commands? What area of your life have you perhaps been preferred to dabble in the ways of this world, perhaps holding on to your own creature comforts, the own lifestyle that you prefer, or perhaps what sins or unforgiveness right, that we harbor. Jesus is calling us today to present tense overcome and to do it confidently because he has overcome, right, to trust in him and the power of his spirit to move in you. But I want to encourage you and exhort you this morning to follow him and to trust him in that and to see that he is good. And maybe you've been fighting that good fight. I want to encourage you to press on because we have confidence and assurance of victory in him. Last thing. I know there's a phrase here that we throw around often, this idea of doing life together, right? It's a cool phrase. And I want to just make sure that when we talk about doing life together, it's not just about hanging out and spending time together but it is about doing life as in encouraging one another to live the life that overcomes sin and death, right? to live the eternal life together. And that's what it would mean for us to do life together. Right? The beautiful thing about this eternal life is that it is not meant to be lived in isolation, but it's meant to be lived in fellowship. Right? John opens his letter in 1 John with the statement right, that our fellowship would be with God and therefore with one another. And so as you guys engage in community, church in the park next week, in discovery groups, I want to encourage you to be doing life, eternal life, together in the present, today, and every day. And I want to encourage you to be the one to take initiative, to ask people how they're really doing and how they're really walking, that they might be encouraged to remember that following Jesus and obeying his commands is totally worth it because of the life that we've been given. So to wrap things up, you know, last week, as Pastor Steve said, when we looked at love, right, and that perfect love casts out fear, we saw that we can love others because we've been perfectly loved and that we go in the confidence of Christ. Well, this morning, in similar fashion, I want us to know, right, that as we walk with Jesus, that we can overcome the world because he has overcome and so we live this life with confidence in him. Let me pray for us.
Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for how amazing you are. And we thank you for sending Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, and for his amazing ministry that he really has in real space-time history conquered sin and death so that we might have eternal life in him. God, that is such amazing good news. And I just pray, Lord, that you would press that upon our hearts, that we would be moved to live differently. Because the assurance of eternal life that you have given us is an assurance that leads us to action. Not an action that is burdensome, but an action that allows us to enjoy you and what you are doing forever and ever and ever. God, would you make that a reality for us? Would you press that upon our hearts by the power of your spirit? And God, would your spirit of life flow through us that we might truly live as your children and as your people, God. Thank you for the assurance of salvation in you and for the work that you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name.